Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Home, sweet home. There's no place like home. Home is where the heart is. These phrases are common to us because we have attachments and longings for a place that we call home, a place that's marked by love and belonging and order and peace and stability and security and safety. Many of you know that I have a 20-year-old son who will on occasion stay out late, and I will freely confess that I always sleep better when I hear the garage door open, and I know He's home. He's home. And yet, as our earth spins, we're flooded with the awareness that there's an awful lot of chaos instead of order, a lot of instability instead of stability, a sense of alienation instead of a sense of love and belonging, and the reality of danger and violence instead of safety. Because we find ourselves in a world, in the words of one artist, where the thistles eat the thorns and the roses have no chance. And it ain't no reason that babies come out crying in advance. We're not at home in this world. Instead, we're plagued with this pestering sense of futility and loneliness and fear and an awful lot of anxiety and depression. According to some recent research, one in six adults in the United States is on some kind of mood-altering medication. And mostly this is in the form of antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs. Now, I understand that there are countless reasons, various reasons and factors that uh, go into the experience of anxiety and depression. But one factor that we should consider is that we don't experience this as a place of home. We're not safe here, and we sense that. And the recent coronavirus outbreak has only served to accentuate our awareness that we live in a hostile, threatening, dangerous, unsafe world. In Portland, Oregon, it was reported that 911 calls that involve suicide attempts or suicide threats are up 41% from this time in 2019, just a year ago, and that such calls spiked by 23% in the 10 days following the placement of residents in that area under a state of emergency because of the pandemic. And those statistics just go to show us that we are tempted to adopt the most extreme measures in trying to escape the troubles of life in a world of hurt. Extreme, drastic measures. And yet, what we need to know this morning is that there is a way out of the fear, anxiety, and despair. There is hope for the troubled heart. There is hope that we will arrive at our true home. And there is hope in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. There is hope in his words in John chapter 14, verses one through six this morning. We're gonna take a look at that passage where we will see that our departing Savior offers hope to troubled hearts with the promise of home. That's the message that we need to hear, that our departing Savior offers hope to troubled hearts with the promise of home. So if you're near a Bible, you have a Bible with you, Uh, This morning, wherever you're watching, you can follow along in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, where we're going to read that now. These are the words of Jesus. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. This passage ends with a verse that's probably familiar to many of you. It's the sixth of seven I am statements that Jesus makes that are recorded in John's gospel. And yet the passage doesn't begin there. It actually begins with the troubled heart in verse one. Jesus says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Now the you're there in the Greek language is in the plural. And so he said he's addressing all of the disciples at once. Let not your hearts be troubled. But why does he say this? Well, it's because he understands that there's a reason that their hearts might be troubled at this point. The previous chapter, John chapter 13, begins what is often referred to as the upper room discourse that runs all the way through John chapter 16. And if you look back in this previous chapter, in John chapter 13, you'll discover that Jesus has just told his disciples that one of them would betray him. That Peter, in fact, would deny him three times. And that he informs his disciples that he's going away. And where he is going, they cannot now follow. And so the disciples who have been in close company with Jesus for three and a half years are now told that he's leaving and they can't comprehend losing him or going on without him. And so these disciples have anxious and troubled hearts. But so do we. So do we. We also have to endure lots of bad news. Stuff that will rip our hearts out stuff that takes the wind out of our sails, stuff that drives us to our knees, and stuff that knocks the air out of our lungs, figuratively and literally knocks the air out of our lungs. And like these disciples, we also have to experience the departure of those that we love, the amputation of close relational ties, because people leave, people move, and people die. And so there's so much to trouble our hearts. Alfred Lord Tennyson captures it poetically and with simplicity when he says, never morning wore to evening, but some heart did break. So what's troubling your heart today, friend? What is troubling your heart? Is it an uncertain future? Is it disrupted plans? Is it your health, concerns about your health, fear for your health or fear for the health of loved ones? Is it the loss of a relationship? Is it the loss of a job? Is it the possible loss of income? Or is it a crumbling economy that's troubling your heart? Well, hear the words of Jesus to his disciples this morning. Let not your hearts be troubled. Not that it's wrong to have a troubled heart in light of the troubles in this world. It's actually unrealistic and fraudulent to be cheerful and merry all the time in this world. And Jesus isn't rebuking his disciples here. But at the same time, he's also not promising them or us that all of our troubles in this life, all that troubles our heart will just vanish, disappear, and evaporate. 
But what he is teaching them and us is that our troubles and the troubles that we experience in this life are not the definitive feature of our existence, nor are they the final and ultimate word of our stories. There's more. There's something that transcends trouble and gives us hope. And that's why Jesus says, believe in God and believe also in me. Now these can be translated as commands as we have them here in the ESV. Believe in God, believe also in me. But they could be translated simply as statements. You believe in God, you also believe in me. But any way you translate it, Jesus is pointing his disciples, he's pointing his followers to faith and trust in God. Not just a faith that he exists, but a trust that he is sovereign, that he's reigning, that he's in control, and that he's good, and his plans and purposes are good. He's pointing them to faith and trust in God, but also faith and trust in him in the midst of their trouble as healing for the troubled heart. But as he does so, notice that he's also elevating himself to the same level as God. I mean, what other mere person would say, believe in God, and to the same degree that you're believing and trusting in him, trust in me also. But that's what Jesus does here. Christian commentator A.W. Pink unpacks Jesus' words like this, paraphrasing. He says, you believe in God, who is invisible. You believe in his love, though you have never seen his form. You are conscious of his care, though you have never touched the hand that guides and protects you. Believe in me also. In like manner, you must have full confidence in my existence, my love and care, even though I am no longer present to sight. So because I am caring for you, I am watching over you, let not your hearts be troubled. But we're given something even more specific to trust and hope in as Jesus points us to the Father's house in verse 2. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now again, this can be translated as a statement as well as a question. So some of your translations might translate it this way. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place a place for you. But again, either as a statement or a question, the essence remains the same. Jesus says that he's going away and he's going away to prepare a place for his followers. And this place is a room in the Father's house. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. And so notice what's implied here. Jesus is going away to be sure, which means he's going to die. But Jesus doesn't stay dead. He's risen from the tomb on Easter morning. And so he's alive now. We worship a living Savior. But that might prompt the question, if Jesus is alive, where is he? Well, he has ascended and is in the presence of the Father in heavenly glory. And one of the things that he's doing there is preparing a place for you, Christian, a place in the Father's heavenly home. And the promise with which Jesus is soothing the troubled heart here with the promise of the Father's house. is actually a promise that runs through the whole of the Bible. Humanity in the beginning was created to live with God, in his presence with joy, to live in fellowship with him, dwelling in their midst. This is the way it was in the Garden of Eden, as God dwelled with the people there and walked with his people. And that was their home. But because 
Adam and Eve sinned, they were driven from their home in Eden, and they were exiled from before his face. And not only that, but God established the place of his special dwelling, not on earth, but in a place called heaven. So God resides now in heaven in a, in a special, particular way where his glory manifests rather than on earth. But even after sin, God in his grace was still committed to dwell in the midst of a people that he called his own. And so he gave instructions to build a tabernacle and then later a temple. And he resided, took up residence in the tabernacle and the temple throughout the Old Testament. But the people sinned again and so the temple was destroyed. But God in his grace was still committed to dwelling in the midst of his people. So this time he comes to dwell among his people in the true temple. The divine presence himself, the second person of the Trinity, the risen Lord Jesus comes to dwell among his people. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And during his time on earth, Jesus rescued his people from their exile by becoming exiled himself, by enduring an exile on the cross where he was forsaken by the Father. But through his exile, we are now welcomed into the presence of the Father again. We are reconciled to him. And after Jesus completed that work of redemption and reconciliation, he was resurrected he ascended into heaven where he's preparing a place for us where he also poured out the Holy Spirit by whom God now dwells in the hearts of believers. So God is present in our hearts by faith in the hearts of believers. But that's not it. There's still more as we anticipate the future because Jesus will come again as he declares in verse three. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now it seems that this promise of the Father's house is provisionally realized when we die and go to heaven in the presence of the Father where Jesus is now. There's kind of a provisional fulfillment in the believer's death going to heaven. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where we read in verse 6. Paul writes, we know that while we are at home in the body, at home in the body, meaning this life on this earth, while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord who is in heaven. But he then goes on to say in verse 8, we would rather be away from the body, meaning when the soul departs the body, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, meaning when we die, and we go to heaven. When Christians die, the soul is at home with the Lord. Now, the Bible actually gives us little details about what this kind of existence is like. We probably want more details about it. But although we don't know a lot about it, Paul seems to suggest here that that existence is kind of like going home. It's not like entering into some strange foreign territory, but rather like entering into the presence of the arms of a welcoming, loving father and finding brothers and sisters and family there who know you and whom you also know. But that provisional realization is not our ultimate homecoming. Our ultimate homecoming is actually realized when Jesus himself comes back to this earth, as Pastor Bob preached a few, a few weeks ago from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, at that time when our bodies will be raised from the dead. Just as Jesus' body was raised from the tomb on Easter morning, our bodies will be raised from the dead. And as Jesus comes back, this heavenly Jerusalem descends 
to the earth. We see this picture in Revelation chapter 21 where heaven and earth are merged, where God makes his dwelling with his people once again. And the words of Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 find their fulfillment. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. Life in his presence, in a new heavens and on a new earth. Eden completely restored. Home at last. Now you might still be having some trouble wondering what's taking so long for the realization of this why Jesus hasn't come back yet. And we get at least a partial answer here in John chapter 14. Our groom is busy preparing a place for his bride, for you and for me. And the scriptures tell us that it will be worth the wait. That is hope and that is joy for the troubled heart. But if that's our true home, if that's the home that awaits us, this new heavens and this new earth, how do we get there? How can we make sure we arrive? And so we read also of Jesus revealing to us the way home. The way home. After speaking of the Father's house, Jesus says in verse 4, and you know the way to where I am going. And this prompts this question from Thomas. And he asks immediately in verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And of course, we can sympathize with Thomas's question because that's how we would feel. How, how are we supposed to know the way if we don't have an address that we can type into our Google Maps on our iPhones? How are we supposed to know how to get there? Listen, the way home is not a spatial direction like north, south, east, or west. The way home is a person. The way home is Jesus. And he answers Thomas's question In verse 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Notice that Jesus isn't just talking here to his disciples about the way. He's not saying that he knows where the way is and he can point them in the right direction to ensure that they get there. That's what other religions say. That's what other religious teachers say. This is the way. This, that is the truth. This is the way home. This is the life. That's not what Jesus is doing. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father. No one enters into eternal life. No one experiences home in eternal glory except through me. The valley of the shadow of death is a profound, uncharted mystery for all of us. A step into the darkness of the great unknown. And how can we be sure that we can navigate our way through that valley of the shadow of death to find life, to navigate that valley, to find the light of home? When Jesus says, you know the way, Christian. We've been given a certain knowledge about the way through death to life, to heavenly glory, a way to the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is the way. And so look to him by faith. Believe in God and believe in him. Trust in him. Look to him by faith and follow him. And if you're doing that, if you're looking to Jesus by faith as your savior, as your redeemer, as your king, and you're following him, your homecoming is certain. He's gone before to ensure your arrival.
And if you're not looking to him by faith, you can look to him by faith now and know that he is preparing a place for you. In the difficult days following World War II in Great Britain, King George VI, who was himself dying of cancer at the time, although the people didn't know it, gave a Christmas Eve address to the people to encourage them as they looked forward to an uncertain new year following the war. And this is what he said. He said, I said to the man at the gate of the year, give me a light that I may walk safely into the unknown. And he said, go out into the darkness and put your hand in the hand of God and it shall be to you better than the light and safer than the known. Put your hand in the hand of God. Take your troubled heart, put it in the hands of God and that will be safer than the known, better than the light. We can put our hand in the hand of God by placing our faith in Jesus. So let not your hearts be troubled. Not because there's no trouble in this life. There's lots of it. But let not your hearts be troubled because our departing, our risen, our ascended Savior offers hope to the troubled heart with the promise of home. Let not your hearts be troubled because Jesus is risen from the dead. He has gone ahead to prepare a place for us in heaven and he's coming back to get us, to take us there, to take us home where he is. And where he is, is our home. You see, the home that we ultimately long for and belong to is also a person. Jesus is our home. Our home where Jesus is and where he is, there we will also be because he's coming to take us there. Now it is true that we'll have to go through much trouble before then. As the hymn Amazing Grace teaches us to sing through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. But listen, it goes on and has us sing these words. Tis grace that brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. Just as the way home is a person, so also grace is not a thing. It's not a substance. Grace comes to us in a person, the person and work of Jesus, risen from the dead. In the closing chapter of the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, it's a book called The Last Battle, Aslan comes to take everyone home. And they are headed away from Narnia and are about to enter Aslan's land, but they're met with familiar scenes on the way. And it's the unicorn who cries out this, I have come home at last. This is my real country. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And the reason why we had loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. The same is true for us, friends, that all of the love and the belonging and the stability and security and safety and peace and order that we've experienced in this life have all been but glimpses of our true home, where Jesus is. And that's a home where every tear will be wiped away. Death is no more. There'll be no more crying and no more pain and no more trouble and therefore no more troubled hearts. That is the hope and the promise of Resurrection Sunday. And that is what Easter means for us. Hallelujah.
and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we bring our troubles and our troubled hearts to you today and thank you that you care for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you have given hope to our troubled hearts with the promise of home. Thank you that you endured exile for us on the cross, that we might be reconciled and welcomed into the presence of your Father and our Father. And thank you that you conquered death through your resurrection, that you poured out your Holy Spirit so that we already have been given new spiritual life as we await your return. And as we wait, give us faith and trust in your preparing a place for us in your love and your mercy. And we thank you that this life is not all trouble, that we experience much joy and goodness and many blessings in this life. And we thank you for the glimpses of love, belonging, order, peace, stability, warmth, and safety that we enjoy by your grace as foretastes of your coming kingdom. And Lord, since we have already been made partakers of that coming kingdom by the new life we have in your spirit that dwells in our hearts, help us be conduits of those things and a fragrance of that love, security, order, and peace as our lives exhibit the power of new life in Christ Jesus, our risen and reigning Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.